You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, record it, and uh, put it out there for everyone to listen to. I think that's how it goes right? around here. Does that well, seem correct? I think so. I think so. Uh, <laughs> you know, after the week we've had, I, I kind of wonder, but no, I, we're staying true to the course. We're making it happen. And uh, I feel like as long as we keep keep on track and get the next episode out, we're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I, well, well, we're actually uh, a little bit ahead, so we're doing really good for that. Yay. Well, then we don't get people saying that they're, uh, you know, disappointed with not having an episode so which you know i hate to disappoint people but it's kind of nice to know that people are disappointed when there's not an episode so it it, it feels good <laughs> i i get that yeah i mean it's not the i mean it's kind of kind of a compliment it's uh but we oh, we are trying compliment. to we are trying to get that taken care of because there are going to be some times uh coming up over the summer where we're going to have other things going on so we're trying to get a little bit of a a little bit of a buffer for us. Right. So, yeah. No, summer's going to be crazy. It's going to be good. We're going to have people in. Uh, I've got uh, a good friend coming to stay with me for a while. And uh, maybe I'm hoping I can possibly get work an interview in with her while she's here. Uh, not promising anything because we may just get too busy talking and visiting. So sure. Uh, anyhow, but this is what we're doing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, when last we left off, we were still in Second Samuel twenty-two. Are we still in Second Samuel twenty-two? We're still in Second Samuel twenty-two because this week we're going to look at the chiastic structure, the chiasm that this chapter is, and we're going to talk about what the central passage or the central theme that is highlighted within that chiasm is. Because, uh, in case people have forgotten, a chiasm is kind of like this V structure within the scripture where you begin with the outermost points of the passage, the, the first and the last, and those two passages correspond. And then as you move into the next section on the first part, the next section on the last part, those correspond until finally you get to the central point. And that's the point that the writer really wants you to pay attention to. And evidently Hector's feeling uh, neglected. Mm -hmm. And so... As puppies often do. <laughs> yes. And so the... Uh, the central point there, that's the, that's the part you want to really pay attention to. It's kind of like the jewel in a, in a ring. It, it's, um, it may, there, maybe it's something... like the, uh, what are they, the capstone or the, the capstone. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's what keystone. Really... That's what I was looking for. Yeah. That's in an archway. There you go. And so, uh, yeah, the, but the writer ha has specifically, configured this to highlight that and so we need to honor their intent by paying attention to that and actually making sure that we don't miss the central point because often the central point as we're going to see is just a couple of lines mm -hmm. and so it doesn't have all of the description it doesn't have all the emphasis that uh, maybe would otherwise be pointers within a writing to pay attention so um 
the the central point in this one uh, is it, kind of interesting to me because we're going to, and I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about just a few lines. Imagine that. Hmm. But so the first clue that you're dealing with a chiasm is when you have repeated words and phrases. And with this um, verse, verses two and three and verses 47 through 49, we have David making almost identical statements. And I'm just going to read those because that way you can see how similar they are. It says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my uh, refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. So then it ends with um, verses 47. It says, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, who gave me vengeance and brought down people under me and brought me out from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me and you delivered me from violence. So we have a lot of shared words. I mean, the, the phrasing's a little different, but we have a lot of shared words, the rock, the salvation, delivered, violence. All of these things play together. And what's really interesting with this chiasm is you actually have a reversal going on. Because in the beginning of the psalm, David is, he's seeking refuge. He needs a shield. He's, he needs God to be his rock, his, his stronghold, his place where he can hide. But then at the end, David becomes this embodiment of God and is acting out the justice that God would have enacted. And so he's given vengeance. He brings people down. Uh, he's been uh, exalted above everyone else, but yet he's still been delivered from violence or violent men, depending on your translation. So in the opening stanza, David's position is purely defensive. This is what he, he needs God to, to move on his behalf to, or to be stable on his behalf. But in the end, David goes on the offense. And he's attacking the ones who have attacked him. I am so sorry. That's Jackson, not my dog, for those of you listening. <laughs> so, so verses 5 through 20 recount the specifics of David's delivering. And this is mirrored in verses 30 through 46. Now, you can get really detailed in how these two passages correspond with each other. I mean line by line, and you can really get into the nitty-gritty. The problem is when we're doing this on the air uh, without any visual aids, I don't have a dry erase board, it gets really convoluted and really complicated really fast. Mm -hmm. So I, I figured probably the best way is if this interests you, you can put in chiasm, C-H-A-I-S-M, into Google or whatever your search engine you want to use and your scripture, the passage you're looking for, and you can find diagram after diagram after diagram on these passages. And so you, they're out there. The, if the work has been done for you, you just have to search for it. And it's very easy to access and you can find in-depth articles. So I decided rather than trying to um, spend a lot of time explaining something that probably I'm just going to end up muddling I, I'm just going to kind of hit the broad strokes. So we aren't going to go into details on those passages. I mean, we kind of went over verse by verse anyways. We went straight through the passage. But um, I do think that one of the very interesting uh, connections 
is between the image of God as the divine warrior, the one who is coming to David's defense. He, he's, um, he's tilting the heavens and the earth. He's shaking the foundation of the heavens in order to rescue David. And then we have David as that embodiment and the description of David as the warrior. Stop it. Um, and being supernaturally empowered to carry out God's purposes on the earth. So you really get the image of God's uh, cooperation or David's cooperation with uh, God, I should say. And I am being used as a chew toy if I'm jerking around here. It's because somebody's really trying to get my attention. It's uh, the dog. First, it's the dog, yes. <laughs> So verse 21 through 29, uh, they're the heart of the chapter. Uh, But it's even more focused than even just 21 through 29. And you really see it in verses 21 through 25. Verses uh, 26 through 29 kind of add a little bit of clarifying subtext to 21 through 25 to kind of explain to you exactly what David's talking about. But they're almost parenthetical to the, to the central point. And you can see it because in verse 21, it says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, mm-hmm. according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And then verse 25, And the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to, the clean, according to my clean, cleanness in his sight. So, you know, the two verses are, are almost, um, again, almost identical. Uh, the, the difference being the hands, the cleanness of David's hands, and David's the cleanness of David in God's sight. And so David really, it's, it's interesting there because he takes it from who he is and what he's done in that first verse with the, the hands, because we think of works of the hand. It's a poetic way to talk about what he's actually been engaged in, what his hands have been doing. Mm-hmm. But then he moves it to what we would call a positional perspective before God that God sees him as clean. And so God ha- has chosen to see him as clean. And we talked about how, um, yeah, David messed up. David did a lot of things wrong in his reign. That's indisputable, undeniable. Anyone who says that David is perfect is lying to you. They're elevating a biblical character above what the Bible presents him. Because remember, the only good, the only one who's good in all of the Bible is God. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus and God. So yeah, who human are the beings same? are sh- who are the same. <laughs> to clarify that, yeah. make sure we're not getting any letters. Yeah, yeah, and so you know when we're trying to explain, uh, you know, big biblical narratives, biblical heroes, we don't want to elevate them beyond what the Bible does. Yes, they're examples. Yes, they serve as inspiration, but they're always shown in not only the things they do right. They're also shown where they're flawed and why God is the one that we have to rely on for salvation. And so, um, you know, David has, has done this terrible things with Bathsheba and Uriah. And even though he's done this, he has repented. And we talked about how his repentance is so clearly on display in Psalms 51 and how he accepted the correction of the prophet. And so he's been forgiven. It's time to move on. It's time to move into a new season of his life where he accepts in faith God's forgiveness. Um, so anyhow, Laughing at the dog, uh, not the Bible, I assume. Yes, I'm sorry. He bit me really hard. Uh, verse 22 through 24 are not linked in um, 
any shared words, but they are linked in shared themes. So in verse 22, David keeps the ways of the Lord. In verse 24, David keeps himself from guilt, which practically those are the same things. If you are keeping the ways of the Lord, then you're not guilty. So even though the words are not identical or, or even similar, the practical outcome of each of them are. In verse 22 and 24, we also says David uh, has not wickedly departed from God, and he is blameless before God. So right there, right in the middle, we, we learn that there's the, the central theme of the psalm. It's in verse 23, between 22 and 24. And it says, for all of his rules, for all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. So David's saying something here that I think a lot of us, if you've been raised in a New Testament church, and this is kind of problematic because we have been taught that basically law and faith can't coexist, that the two are kind of antithetical to each other because, you know, we're not saved by, by works. We're, we're saved by grace through faith. And so the idea that David is saying that the salvation, this blessing, this defense happens because he's actually keeping the law almost feels counterintuitive for a lot of us who were raised with this idea that the, the law is almost a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, well, I Go mean, ahead. you know, we, we were raised very much in the tradition that, and it was, and the more I think about it, the it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, we were kind of <laughs> raised in this tradition that in order to get to heaven, you had to keep the law perfectly. And this was what the Israelites were concerned with. Um, mm -hmm. And that this is what the, the people of Israel practiced as best they could. and that they had to have the animal sacrifices to take away sin uh, when they couldn't keep the law perfectly and all that. And then we find out, well, that didn't really actually save them. It was actually the grace of Christ and that they were constantly looking for the, the Messiah and their hope they had in the Messiah was what saved them and not uh, it, it was is very convoluted the, the in the tradition we grew up in it was the the picture we had of Judaism was very unclear it, it it really was and i think that's one of the problems is not only was it unclear to us i think it was unclear to the people trying to explain it to us and Fair. so you know that that ends up being very um very confusing on so many levels and you know i think that we, we've got to figure out how are we going to reconcile the two because the, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures are literally separated by a page in the book. Mm. That, that's the only thing that separates them. I mean, we can talk about the gap in, in time and history, and we will uh, when the prophets go silent. But, but the, the truth is, oh, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're, okay. So I'm jumping the gun there. Want, I'm sorry. <laughs> you are, but okay. So let me give a little teaser, uh, and we'll come back to this because I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, I have gotten some really great feedback on uh, the discussion of Hannah, and as I was putting this together, and I was thinking about that silent time between uh, Malachi and Matthew, and you know, 
what people kind of characterize that season as being. And the, uh, you know, it's interesting that when the, the pro- prophetic voice returns to Israel, it's oh, sorry, <laughs> through the song of a woman. Uh, that's when the, the, the prophecy, the voice of prophecy is returned. And then when you look at when prophecy returns to Israel again in the New Testament, it's once again the first word of prophecy that's delivered to the masses or in a public way is uh, the song of a woman, and it's Mary's word. And so then when, quote unquote, uh, kind of uh, symbolically prophecy dies in the death of Jesus, it's the women who once again go and tell the, the Jesus has risen. So I think we're going to get into some really interesting things there because um, there's, there's some really big themes that people overlook uh, as far as in regards to women uh, because they're not looking at narrative to explain stuff. They're actually looking for proof text to support their decisions on how they view women. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of the things we need to be cautious of is any teacher who says that they have performed an exhaustive study of women in the Bible, or they've gone through all the verses concerning the the study of the Bible and then discount the narratives because that happens. And the narratives teach us a lot. Well, and if you, if you, um, if you claim to have exhaustively studied the Bible, you're wrong. Right. (laughs) Right. There's your first tip off that this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, if you dismiss a narrative, sorry. If you dismiss the narratives, then there's your your next tip off that this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, so anyhow, in this psalm, David has not only confirmed that he's the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy, which is very interesting and also overlooked by people who say they studied women in the Bible. Um, David has really explained how God has just gone through crazy lengths to be able to to rescue David. I mean, and we've talked about the the symbolism and the um, the metaphors that were used there and how powerful they are. But David says the reason God did this is because David has listened to God's decree. You know, last week I bragged on him because he just went under the table and fell asleep while we recorded. Uh, so, um, now, and I don't want to say that this idea that the law is without value almost, or that the law is somehow sinful is without reason or cause because we, people do get this idea from scripture. Now it's scripture that they're not reading in context. It's scripture that they're not, um, fully appreciating the message of. And, uh, I, I want to read where a lot of us get this idea from and um, because I don't want to just discount people. I don't want people to think that we're ignoring um, the Bible uh, or what the new Testament has to mm-hmm. say. And so Galatians three, 10 through 12 says for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse for it's written curse be anyone who does, does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not that there's, without, there's no basis for rejecting the law, okay? That's, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that we need to go back and 
ascribe to the rules of Torah in order to be good Christian. Right. Okay. And, and what you read was from Paul, right? Yes, absolutely. And, it's from Paul. Yeah. And if you overlay that with what you're seeing in the Psalms, you're and you compare that with the life of David, you're seeing that there's no break in continuity there. David wasn't justified right. by keeping the Torah, obviously. Um, Absolutely. There, there's no record that he made these sacrifices to make himself right with God. Mm-hmm. It's his faith and his repentance that it, that is the vehicle that, that reunites him, brings him back to God. Right. Well, and, and I think what happens is we we tend to read these Old Testament stories from a New Testament perspective. Mm-hmm. We tend to say, oh, well, you know, we have freedom in Christ, and this is what God always intended. And we forget that's not how it always worked. And, you know, we've got to remember, David's a Jewish man. He, he's a man who uh, his whole life is dictated and uh, shaped by the Torah. And he didn't have the letters to the Galatians. He didn't have Paul's writing. He didn't even know uh, Jesus' teaching. Uh, so he didn't have access to any of that. So we need to look back at where David is and understand that he is subject to the Torah. I mean, this is God's spoken, revealed word at Sinai. And I think we forget that this God went to great lengths to give the Torah to the people of Israel. And so... If you disregard the Torah, you aren't being faithful or honoring God. Mm-hmm. And so we can't say, oh, well, they were just following the law and they just, it, we can't look down on the Jews. That's, that's one of the things that drives me crazy. Don't look down on the Jews for following the Torah. That was the, the rule that God had gave them. And when God tells you to do something, you better do it. Mm-hmm. And so, because there's, there is this, this, um, almost disdain that we see towards the Jewish people who are following the law. And that includes the New Testament Pharisees. And, you know, the Pharisees were doing what they were told to do. The last thing that they believe God had told them to do. And so, you know, they were actually in a lot of ways doing the right thing by challenging Jesus, by trying to figure out who he was, if he was who he claimed he was. Because if, if he wasn't the true Messiah, and they followed him, then they would have been wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we discount the fact that these guys are actually doing the right thing because we go, oh, well, of course Jesus is the Savior. Well, why do we know that? We know that because God revealed himself and God explained to Paul, who did a lot of writing to explain this to us, the people who wrote the Gospels. Yeah. You know? Well, and we also, for, we also forget that the Jews weren't looking for someone like Jesus, the Jewish nation, the, right. the, the nation of Israel was not looking for someone like Jesus. They were looking for mm-hmm. someone who was anointed, an anointed leader. Mm-hmm. But the idea that it was going to be God incarnate was mm-hmm. wrapped up in the prophetic messages in a way that the that a lot of people missed, and that's what. Right. Because when we look back at the Old Testament, unfortunately, we're looking back, like you said, with our New Testament goggles on. And we're going, mm-hmm. well, of course they should have, uh, you know, of course they should have known when all the miracles were happening. And it, but we have other stories of miracles by other rabbis from that same time period before and after. Yeah. And so, it, you know, miracles really don't, they help validate, but they don't prove. Right. 
And, and how many prophets were able to do miracles? And so the fact that Jesus is doing miracles, and also these aren't caught on tape. They aren't, you know, you've got a crowd of, you know, what, 30 people can gather around and actually see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And everybody past that is just having to accept the words of whoever actually saw it. So, you know, even when Jesus was living with on this earth with people, there was still an element of faith that had to be exercised to say, yes, this is the Messiah. This is God. And so we we need to stop feeling so smug, I think, because I, we've had it all laid out for us. We have gotten the, the gospel and we've gotten all this theology through Paul and through great commentators and through t great teachers and these wonderful bits and bites that help us make sense of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think we forget what a blessing it is because we didn't, I mean, God didn't have to do that for us. But, you know, I think, you know, there's a tendency to go, well, you know, David was an Old Testament Jew, so he was under the law. We're Christians. We're not. So we can just, you know, blow by this. And I think when we do that, we're doing an injustice to, to the biblical text. And we're doing an injustice to the people of the Hebrew scriptures. And we're even to God, because, you know, God doesn't make that sharp distinction between who he was during David's day and who he is during Paul's day. And I also think the problem with that is it makes it far, far too convenient to fall into that mindset of where the God of the Old Testament is the big, mean, angry God waiting to zap you if you mess up. Mm -hmm. You break one of the laws, and he's going to take you out. But then we've got Jesus who comes along, and he's all about love, puppies, butterflies, and walks on the beach. I mean, which is wrong. That's that's the wrong mindset to have. Well, it, yeah. it, and it also it lends itself, like you're talking about, being arrogant against, uh, against Jewish people and against the— uh, against what the Pharisees and rabbis at the time thought. Paul warns us against mm -hmm. that and, yeah. uh, and, and tells us, hey, if, if you fall into this trap and you become arrogant like the, like the, the, the people, not, and again, not all Jews, because the early church was largely Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> um, and Paul, like Paul's letters were during the time that the Gentiles were just starting to kind of come into the, the, the fold. Mm -hmm. And so he's writing mm -hmm. to these Gentiles and saying, hey, don't become arrogant thinking now that you're the people of God, that you can just do whatever or that you can lord it over anyone else or you'll be cut off. And quite honestly, right. you know, I, I do think that might have something to do with why we have so many different denominations. Um, but Interesting theory. Um, <laughs> And again, I'm not saying that every new denomination is correct, but you can see there's a lot of rebirth and things going on uh, all the time in the church, and a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of things changing. But you know, we're we're warned very, very uh, specifically, very um, trying to think of the word adamantly, adamantly, <laughs> very. Uh, I don't know specifically. I'm trying to think of what the the word I'm looking for there. Explicitly. Explicitly. There it is. <laughs> That's the one. Um, not to not to become these arrogant people who are like, oh, well, we've got it figured out, and so we're God's people now, and so everything's going to go right and perfect for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it will. And yeah, I, I absolutely, I, I, I agree with that because, you know, 
we we have this tendency to to think we're the wisest, we're the smartest, we're the ones who know the best, the best and the most, and that's just humanity. It, it's been that way since the dawn of time, and every new generation thinks they've got it figured out, and the next generation coming up is stupider than the past ones. So mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. it, we we've seen this cycle. Yeah, every generation's <laughs> a little bit narcissistic. You think? Yeah. Well, and you, you don't, <laughs> but, and it, it takes a lot to get over that. And you, you mm-hmm. have to read history. You have to understand how things work. And, you know, it's, and it's a tragedy that we don't spend more time in the narrative and that we do teach history the way we do. We teach history as a bunch of dates and events that you have to memorize. And mm-hmm. we, again, we don't talk about the narrative. I mean, and then, we, and then we do it with the Bible, too. We make systematic theologies, which is basically taking all the interesting parts of the Bible out. <laughs> Right, and making it and only keeping yeah, and making only keeping what supports our system. Yeah, and then making it making the and making Christianity a list of propositions, um, right, and a and a list of and a list of theological points that are all made up of words that most of the people using them don't actually understand. <laughs> well, and this explains why there you know for so long you and I you still hear it some, but not as much as I think you did. Where it's, oh, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And I think that's, you know, that was part of that pushback at, at one point against these systematics. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing back the other way where the systematics have taken over uh, once again or trying to. And, um, you know, we've got to have balance. We've got to strive to have a proper and appropriate uh, perspective of all this and not fall into either ditch because you don't get anywhere when you're in the ditch. And, Unfortunately, most of us don't like to do that. I mean, I know I don't like to do that. It's easier to be an extremist than to find balance. And, you know, that's just the truth, at least for me. But Uh, maybe there's a. Don't you know finding balance is this this crazy new age teaching, Emily? (sighs) Okay, so on this rabbit trail. Ah, no. I'm sorry. I I can't tell you. I mean, there's. It's. It's. There are people. So many Christian podcasters and preachers rail against this idea all the time. And it's like, it's in Ecclesiastes. The man mm-hmm. who fears mm-hmm. God avoids all extremes. I... Well, and the, the thing is, what we've, what we've done as Christians, um, basically, we've allowed evil to come along and say, hey, this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. And, and intelligent evil, and I'm, I'm very condensing. This is not a nuanced presentation at all. New intelligent evil has put their stamp on so many things that God created and God created to be good and said, this is mine. And Christians have gone, oh, that's that's evil. Instead of saying, "Uh, uh-uh, my God created that and my God says it's good and I'm going to make use of it and I'm going to employ it correctly and appropriately without fear of whatever this enemy of God has said. Because basically we've laid down our arms and, and said, oh, we're so scared. I mean. I know people who won't meditate on scripture because it's meditation, despite the fact that the Bible has commanded us to do so. Mm-hmm. So, and they're, oh, it's meditation. That's, that's um, you know, some kind of Buddhist practice, and we don't do that. Well, let's talk about what meditation is. And that's how the enemy has managed to take away so many good things from God's people, because we have fallen for the deception. And this time, instead of him saying, oh, the f- tree that's got the fruit is, is good. Mm-hmm. We, he said the stuff on that tree is evil and we've believed him. 
And so we need to stop doing that, and we need to carefully weigh all practices, all things against the Word of God, and quit allowing knee-jerk reactionary folks to dictate what we can and cannot do. We need to go back to the source. Yeah, it's, it's like so, it's like we've made a, a a new list of Christian kosher things, and we really and, have. You know, we're all sitting around going, "Oh, we can't have that; it's unclean." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I think there's a lot of teachings on that, but okay. Have we killed that rabbit? I think we might have. So, um, but what, where I was going with this before I got completely derailed is one of the ways that we've tried to bridge this gap between that, like I said, that Old Testament God of wrath and judgment and the one who's just can't wait to condemn everyone to hell. Um, and Jesus is the, we've tried to make Jesus meaner. And I've seen this so often online where, where we've, oh, well, you know, Jesus coming back in the great white throne judgment. He's coming back on a horse. And, and, and I'm not denying any of that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but again, I think that's, that's looking at the Old Testament through our New Testament lens. And I think maybe instead of looking at this backwards and trying to make Jesus meaner, we actually try to look at and appreciate <laughs> Uh, my chair is being dragged across the floor. <laughs> anyway, try to look back and appreciate those times in the Old Testament where God is merciful and he's kind and he's loving and he's faithful. And all of those great attributes that we celebrate about Jesus are vividly on display in the person and the protection of God. Because God was loving and merciful and kind in the Old Testament. He's not just this big evil meanie who's trying to to kill everyone. And this psalm has very specifically laid out how God has enacted his, his love. And he's done it, it, the psalmist has done it through these very vivid descriptions that we, you know, the, the shaking of the heavens and the earth, the shaking of the foundations of the heavens. And, you know, why? Because the one God loves is in danger. And so God's going to provide support and protection. And he's going to give that supernatural intervention because David's in a situation that requires supernatural intervention. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. I mean, come on, who among us doesn't want God to do the same thing for us? And, you know, David is saying not only does God show up, God has empowered, he empowers David to, to take a stand and to face his enemies and to overcome, not, you know, just random people, you know, but people who are deliberately trying to take David out. Mm -hmm. And all of this is an act. It's, it's a tangible display of God's love for, for David. And, you know, it's, it's manifestation of that love. And so when David says God ha has done all this because he's kept God's laws, he, he is not turned away from God's statutes, he's not describing a quid pro quo. Because that's the other thing we think about the Torah. It's like, oh. Well, they just needed to do this, and God would do that. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this very manipulative uh, system. Now, we're going to learn when we get into Second Kings and we learn, look at the uh, prophets that this kind of manipulation of the system is what winds up with everybody gets sent to Babylon. Right. David, David is not trying to lay out that system. He's actually celebrating that God is true to his word, that God is you can rely on his character. You can rely on his integrity. You can rely on God to do exactly what he said he would do and keep his promise. Why? Because David has, has done his part. And it's this 
you know, it's, it's that situation where, and we've used this metaphor before, but it works so well. It's not like I don't do the dishes one night and Ty says, oh, well, I get to cheat on you. That, that, that's, that's not the, the situation, okay? That, that's not the, what God has lined up here. Or if I promise to always do the dishes and have dinner cooked, then, okay, he's not going to cheat on me. It, it's, it, it is this idea that together, the two of you do things to honor each other consistently. And so it's, it's not out of some kind of manipulation of Ty that I do the dishes. And it's not out of some kind of manipulation of me that Ty doesn't cheat on me. It is an expression of love. Mm -hmm. And so we need to hang on to that. So God says in the Torah that if you love him and you honor his commandments and you do what he's told you to do, that he's going to send rain for abundant crops. He's going to give security and peace in the land. He's going to, you're going to have children. They're going to prosper. You're going to prosper. And when we think about God as the creator and the sustainer of life, you cannot be near to him without life being tangibly and powerfully manifest. And that's what the Torah is. The Torah is the invitation. It's the, it's the method, the means through which you are invited to come and be near to God. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we forget that, the, you know, Yes, God is holy, so there has to be preparations. There has to be a system of sorts so that allows you to engage because we're human beings, and you know you don't want to get destroyed because you walk into the Holy of Holies, you walk right up to God. What happens? He strikes you dead. So, <laughs> but what I found to be interesting is when we look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, this is what David, part of what David's referring to when he's talking about the Torah about keeping God's statutes and laws. He, God says, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall, you be, shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, blessed shall you be your basket, your basket, uh, sorry, blessed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl, blessed shall you be when you come in, blessed shall you be when you go out. Now, these words are highly evocative of a New pa Testament passage. And that's Matthew 5, where we're talking about the Beatitudes, because it's just as valid to translate this, not just blessed will you be or blessed shall you be, but blessed are. Mm -hmm. So we have Jesus picking up these same words, and we're seeing this continuity between Jesus and God, the, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. And David is celebrating this unchanging nature of God of the fact that God can be true to his word. And David has no reason to fear because this is the God he loves and the God who loves him. And, you know, and this, there's this unrestrained manifestation of this love that David says is available to all. How is it available? Well, you enter into the relationship. How do you enter into the relationship? You enter into the relationship by honoring the Torah. And <clears throat> we forget that this is an act of love, that the giving of the Torah in and of itself is an act of love by God. Mm -hmm. God did not have to provide the methods or means for his creation to know him. There's a lot of people who will tell you that God didn't, that even if there was a supernatural power that provides us with, act, who provided us with this life, this earth, and through creation, that he left a long time ago. But 
God did decide that, hey, I want to be known Mm -hmm. and I want to know my creation. And so he gives them a way to do that. And I think that sometimes we forget how amazing that is because we've been taught so long and so continuously that God is with us. That's not a common concept, particularly in these ancient worlds. God didn't live with the people on the earth. They lived on mountaintops. They lived below the sea. They lived under the earth. They didn't live with humanity. Right. They occasionally visited you know, temples, uh, came down to, to have some ritual sex and a ziggurat, but they didn't actually dwell they didn't tabernacle with at their first creation. i thought you said have some ritual sex and a cigarette <laughs> a cigarette <laughs> oh my gosh i was like that is <laughs> sorry i didn't oh. well that either <laughs> the only smoke they were smoking were the incense so I mean, uh... Oh my goodness! I'm leaving that in. That, but yeah, either, either one's a... inappropriate. But yeah, I mean, wow. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the point is the, the gods were separate, except for sometimes. There you go. They were inappropriately close. Um. So uh, yeah. So what what we've got is this really great picture of this one god who says, "Hey." I want to be a part of your life. And here's the, here's the standard that this can happen. I mean, yeah, other gods would, like I said, occasionally visit for various reasons, but um, this God says here, here's something that you can rely on. Uh, And so we don't have this kind of, uh, you know, despair uh, that goes on in other cultures. We have other Psalms from this time. We've mentioned them before where, psalmist of other lands and yes psalms just mean songs so they're not exclusive to israel other countries the egyptians the canaanites the uh the hittites um i started to say the ugarites but i don't think that's right anyway all of these people they compose psalms and we have psalms that there's this lament of i don't even know what the gods want i i can't figure it out and there's this hopelessness that the gods are so unknowable that they will never be able to please God. So when God gives this law or the Torah to the nation which and the individuals of the nations, it's a gift. It's saying, I will always operate by these rules. You can always have certainty. You can always have security. You don't have to wonder about what I'm thinking because I reveal my will to everyone. And I think if we... um Read these passages in the Old Testament describing the beauty of law and compare it to the freedom we have in Christ. It's hard to reconcile the two, mm-hmm. but we need to to stop looking at it as Christians who say, yes, we have freedom in Christ, because when we say we have freedom in Christ, that makes us feel like the Old Testament laws or the Hebrew laws were, were oppressive, and, and they weren't. I mean, just, just consider some of the laws that the other cultures at that time were operating under. I mean, you had to give sacrifices, not only of your best of your flocks and herds in order to hope and pray that maybe this was what was going to appease the gods enough in order to get a good crop. Mm -hmm. This time, if it didn't work, what do you do? Well, you take one or two of your kids out and you sacrifice them. Well, and 
And you know, and again, and not to discount the freedom that we have in Christ, but I can't remember who it was who said it. But there's the there's a quote that you know, true freedom is not to do as one pleases, but to please in doing right. And when you have, you know, if you look at judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like you're saying, it's kindness, and we've talked uh, again about parents setting boundaries and things like that. But there's also, I mean, not just here's another example is. You know, I, I've been in uh, some various churches where they, you know, throughout my days, and, and one of the churches I was at, we had a lot of latitude to do what we wanted as far as music um, or different things like that. But, and what seemed mm-hmm. like a lot of freedom at first really just kind of felt like it, it, it turned out it was just directionless. There was there yeah. wasn't a defined goal, um, and not not that we have to be quote unquote goal goal oriented whenever we, you know, enter into worship. I know there's not a goal quote unquote, but there was no like this is what we're going for in the structure of what we're doing. This is why mm-hmm. we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Was just kind of rudderless, and so when we do have the law, we're not and we're not just doing what's right in our own eyes. Yes, that is a blessing because then we have a guideline for doing right and 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 working yeah. together. Yeah. A- absolutely. I and, and you know, sometimes you need somebody to cast the vision. I mean, to pick up on a popular uh phrase I've heard. But, you know, that's that's the thing. The, when David says that God's word is a mercy and it's helpful and it's perfect and it's beautiful. And we have scripture after scripture celebrating the law. And yet we still, I think we kind of read them with the jaundiced eyes. Um, We need to remember those, that's not just lip service, especially coming from David. I, I think we forget David didn't just live in Israel. David lived among the Philistines. He lived with Moabites for a while. He got to see how these different um, religions functioned within these different countries. And what's really interesting, and I thought about this early this morning, you know, in a lot of these Canaanite religions, um, you know, sexual, pro- uh, sorry, temple prostitution, that's what I'm trying to say. Temple prostitution was a major part of their religion. And so David literally could have decided to join with these other countries where his sexual whims and appetites could be fulfilled without any question. And yet he decided not to. And so that's a huge statement coming from David that he said, you know, God's way is still better than the one that serves and fulfills my flesh. And you know, David is not making an uninformed choice. He's not even making a choice that is, you know, maybe the most uh, appealing to his flesh. But I, I hadn't I considered that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes when I don't have all the caffeine in my system, like at 3 a.m., <laughs> things come to mind. Uh, but, you know, I, I, my big point is, is, is that, that the Torah is not evil. And I think we got to get past that. And I think we forget to even view those parts in the New Testament that affirm this. Now, Paul writes a lot about the law. And uh, we need to remember that David and, and Paul were both Jewish men under the Torah. Uh, Paul, for the season, until he received the good news of Christ, and it was revealed to him, hey, this is what the Torah was pointing to. But Paul writes in, in Romans, 
And I think this is very clarifying for what David's saying here. And he, this is a pretty significant passage, so just buckle in. Uh, Romans 12, 7 is where I'm going to start. It says, what then shall I say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, proceeded in me to to uh, all kinds of, sorry, proceeded, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, the sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh and sold under sin. And then he goes on to talk about how I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do. But I'm going to pick up in verse 22. It says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So even Paul, with everything he wrote in Galatians and talking about the law and uh, how there's a curse of being under the law, he expresses a very high regard for the law. Mm -hmm. He never once denies that the law was good. Now, what he tells us here, what what I think he's saying is that the problem isn't the law. The problem is the sin within us that corrupts us, that, that uses the law against us. The law is, is wonderful. Uh, James even says the law is perfect. And so I, I think Paul helps us understand what David's saying here. Yes, he, he sinned, and there's no denying that. And I don't think we ever want to downplay that. I think we need to be very real about David's shortcomings and failures. but. Paul is describing that even while he wants to do the right thing, he's not doing it. Even as he honors the law, even as he believes the law is a good, holy, righteous thing, his own words, he has a hard time maintaining it because of what's in him. And so David and Paul is describing that that same battle that goes on within us, but also went on within David. And so I think when David is saying, I didn't turn aside from the statutes of the Lord, that, that he kept the law before him, that, yes, he violated them, but he never claimed he was right to do so. And he mm-hmm. still acknowledged that God's ways were holy, they're righteous, they're good. And he says that in 20 different ways in the Psalms. He's over and over, he upholds how amazing the laws are. And, you know, he didn't make excuses like Saul did for breaking the law. He doesn't um, just flagrantly disavow the law um, or set it aside or rebel against it in the way that future kings would do. Uh, He doesn't deny the validity or the efficacy of the law, like the kings that we're going to encounter in the book of Kings. Mm -hmm. So I I think one of the things we see is, yes, he violated the law, but he doesn't disavow it. I think that's what it boils down to. He still upholds it throughout. And so when he makes that proclamation in verse 23, where he says, for all the rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. 
he's speaking about that truest part of who he is, that, that part of him that doesn't want to sin, the part of him that wants to be in lockstep with God, and that he doesn't want anything that's going to bring separation between uh, him and God, that, that, to use Paul's word, that spiritual side of him. Mm-hmm. And bec- because the one thing you cannot say about David is he never just walked away. He always came back. He always repented when the prophets confronted him. By the time he takes the census, he doesn't even need a prophet to confront him. He comes back, he repents, and he renews his commitment to to upholding the law. And so I know that was a long way to keep making the same point. (laughs) But at the same time, I, I just get so tired of people acting like the Old Testament is something less than the New Testament that the Hebrew scriptures are somehow inferior to the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The only way we're ever going to understand the New Testament and the the beauty and and the richness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and all of that theology that Paul packs into those books, is if we understand the places that that gave us those principles that, that Paul is drawing from, the sources that Paul's drawing from, and begin to see them not as just these random and arbitrary declarations about how things should work and understand that he really is building on tradition and knowledge and revelation that has been with the Israelites since Sinai. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a pet peeve of mine, I know, but it's really, um, it's really hard for me to get past it because we 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 don't devote enough time studying the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and appreciating the revelation that God gave us in this part of the Bible. And we've got to stop acting like it doesn't impact us as New Testament Christians. It absolutely does. Paul tells us this in his word. And we've got to stop acting like Paul's just doing some kind of, you know, little nicety mm-hmm. and tipping his hat. He He, he really isn't. He, he he believes what he says. And if you're going to go and, and say, well, by the plain reading of the Bible, then you need to read that plainly, too. So um, we're just going to dip our toes in. That, that is all of 2 Samuel 22. That's it. Uh, <laughs> we've wrapped seven. it up. <laughs> all five weeks. Seven. I don't know how many was. I, just, I know we've been in it for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm just going to dip our toes in to chapter 23. And once we get through with this section of chapter 23, we're done with 2 Samuel. Uh, it's only taken us how many episodes? Um, um, but... Well, I don't know. I mean, we started 1 Samuel, February of 2020. Just a little while. We've been here. And, well, and... Yeah, just a little bit. But I mean, it's a large chunk of information. So, I mean, at the rate we're covering it, I mean, it, yeah, it's We're still missing stuff. Yeah. Exactly. We're still missing stuff. And, and the great thing is, because we've pretty much settled on once we get through Kings, uh, that we're going to be going into the Gospels, um, which I am scared to death of, just to be honest. Um, but this is going to give us a really good historical foundation for those, those discussions of the Gospel stories, because there's a lot of things in the Gospels that we miss because we can't point back to the times that it was addressed in the Old Testament because we don't know our Hebrew scripture. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a lot of things that are going to make sense, more sense, 
um, that we're just going to be, you know, it's going to blow your mind at how much Jesus references back and how much Paul pulls on this. I mean, we aren't going to get into a lot of Paul yet. Uh, I, I think we need to leave Paul to, to Joshua, honestly. Uh, so uh, he, he's better at that. Tending our nets, folks. Listen okay. to that. Uh, I, might be, but, I might be okay with that. But I, I'm sure we'll, we'll get around to Paul at some point. But, but let me get my confidence built up. And it's, you know, after all the years of podcasting, I'm still not there. Um, so just a little uh, intro about what to look forward to next week. We're going to be talking about 2 Samuel 23. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 because this is David's last words. Um, what's really interesting is they can't really be David's last words because David doesn't die until 1 Kings chapter 2. Would it be maybe his last official statement as king? There you go. Look at that common sense. It's amazing. You know, uh, okay, I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of people who go, look at all the contradictions in the Bible. And you just go, think about it for two seconds. Um, and maybe I shouldn't make fun of those people. I'm, and maybe I should ask for forgiveness. But, you know, like, seriously, this, this is David's last final pronouncement, not just as king, but also as prophet and priest. because. He had those public roles. When we get to to First Kings two, he's talking to Solomon. He's discussing, you know, some some plans for Solomon's future. And honestly, what he has to say there is not as holy or righteous as what he's saying here. Um, he's got some very interesting of, advice. Got some crazy advice, and there's some debate on how right and how correct that that this advice was. So we're going to talk about that when we get there. Um, but yeah, this is this really is David's last pronouncement as a public figure, and um, you know there's really not a conflict. And I think one of the things that we need to remember too is First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are all part of one book, mm-hmm. and so um, this is part of the reason why we've got this this weird cutoff on his death versus not. Um, basically. We, we've discussed this before, but it's a good reminder. First uh, Samuel, first second Samuel, and first second Kings are divided the way they are because that's the standard length of a scroll. Now, we do have some traditions and some manuscripts where actually David's death is in Second Samuel. It isn't in First Kings because the scrolls were a little longer. I mean, it, it's really is that simple, and so. But what happened once it kind of became standardized, it became standardized that first and second Samuel cut off where they do. Then we do have that last four chapters just kind of dropped in or attached to the end of second Samuel. So we need to remember when we pick up with first Kings, after we talk about David's last words, that we really don't need to pick up with chapter 24 fresh in our minds. We need to pick up with chapter 20 fresh in our minds. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it, kind of makes for a little bit uh, of confusion there, but I, I'll help remind us when we get there. And trying to understand David's last words is going to prove to be a little tricky. And we're going to have to look at a couple of different sources because since these last four chapters were just kind of stuck on here and we really don't know, um, we don't know who wrote them. We don't know what time frame they were written. Um, 
we are having a hard time kind of with dating and the dating helps us understand more about how certain words were used in the Hebrew. And then to complicate things further, David's last words are very, very old. I mean, like some of the oldest writing we have. And because they're, they're old, the, the meaning of the words have changed. Mm -hmm. The grammar rules have changed. And so we can't even look at the, the current context of these last words to try to understand them. We can't look at the book of Samuel to try to put them in place. Um, I mean, we can, but it's only moderately helpful. So we're going to have to talk, we're going to talk about how um, other methodologies that we can use to try to understand these words specifically and to understand these words better. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun study. And I really do. I, I'm just starting on putting my notes together, but I think we're going to get into some divine counsel stuff with this, um, with this last bit of second Samuel. Okay. So that always makes me happy. Yeah. So we'll cut it off there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that sounds like a good way to good place to end. And meantime, I guess go feed your dog or whatever you need to do there. And <laughs> he's been pulling my chair all over the place. That's so funny. Get, get some of those rubber stopper things to put underneath it. So yeah. anyway, uh, everyone, thanks for joining us. Hope you had a good time and, uh, Hope you had an educational time. And that being said, join the conversation. Raven Creek SC on all the social media. RavenCreekSC.com is the website where you can find this show and others. Um, so find us there and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.